The church in America is in a crisis. We're in a theological crisis because many churches have left sound teaching and Bible teaching behind to capitulate to the world because of the pressure to staying relevant and not being musty and boring. We have a sexual abuse crisis where you have denominations and churches that would cover up the abuse of women and children in an attempt to hold on to power or because they don't want people to think ill of them. We have a moral crisis because Americans are no, American Christians specifically are known not for believing things that are old or backwards or not really as hip anymore, but largely we're known for being hypocrites, for not even living out that which we say that we believe. There's a political crisis where the division in our politics and our country spread to our churches as well, where we care more about who our fellow believers have voted for than what they actually believe about the Bible, or if they believe the Bible. We have a biblical literacy crisis where studies show that even people who go to church, only 30% of those who regularly attend church actually are reading their Bibles regularly. They actually are familiar with the Bible. We have a preaching crisis where we have too many churches that are filled with preachers and people in the pews that are content to listen to preaching that's primarily wisdom or good teaching but doesn't have much to do with the Bible. We have a gospel crisis where we are content to teach people what it means to be a little bit better, to be a little bit better at things, how to have nicer relationships, so we don't want to talk much about the gospel. We have a discipleship crisis, where we're, our churches can be great at drawing crowds and getting people in the room, but maybe we're not so good at actually making people disciples of Jesus. We have a consumerism crisis, where people treat the church just like it's another product, It's another thing for entertainment. It's another something to serve me or for me to consume rather than something for me to serve in a place to worship God. We have a power crisis where we have those who are in positions of power in the church can be more interested in keeping their own influence and power than caring about what their their witness to the world actually is. Those are just a few that I could think of this week. I'm sure there are so many more even as I say that that you can reflect on. So what can we do in the face of such a crisis? What can we even as Tanglewood Bible Fellowship do? Because hopefully most of those things are not true about us, but we're part of the larger church. And so how can we respond? What is the path forward? Well, I think the path forward for us as a church is first we start by looking backwards to God's Word. And I want us to find and look at another church that also found themselves in plenty of their own immense crises or crises. I don't know the plural. And so the church in Corinth um, that we're going to be going through in this book of 1 Corinthians is another church that found themselves in the midst of a lot of crisis. They have so many issues. They are filled with believers fighting, being divided, believers suing each other in court. They're known for their sexual immorality. Incest is found among them that everybody knows about. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so what I want us to do as we go through this series, we're going to look at, well, what does Paul say to this church? What does he say to this church that's in crisis, and what does that mean for us? So this morning we're going to talk about three things, and it's really the, the good, the bad, and the ugly gospel, to borrow from Clint Eastwood. Thank you, I liked it too. So first, let's start by looking at the good. It's always good to start at a good place. 
before we get to the bad news. And so point number one, if you're taking notes, is that the worst church is still Christ's bride. The worst church is still Christ's bride. And before I unpack that, I want to start a little bit and talk about some background on the city of Corinth, um, not just because Bible backgrounds are interesting, um, I mean, although I find it interesting, but because as we look at, and the more I studied the city of Corinth, the more I found, wow, that sounds a lot like uh, an American city. The more I looked and the more I saw things, it, it seems that way. So now geographically, the city finds itself in a very important location, okay, because especially um, at that time, the place you're at determines whether you're going to be a big metropolis or if you're just going to be a ghost town, because if no one's coming to where you're at, then you're not going to be a big city. But they were at a very important place. They were right on a peninsula between, you know, larger Greece, the rest of the country, and then kind of the bottom, this other peninsula down there. And so it was on the land bridge, so it became a big port. People who are going to and from to the rest of the Greece or down to here had to go through Corinth. So you got to pay, you know, pay the toll. You got to do business there. And then it was also important because ships wouldn't want to sail all the way around that peninsula because it would be dangerous. And so they'd go through Corinth as well. And Corinth had sea harbors on both sides of the land. So you'd park your boat, they'd drag it across, and then you pay again at the other side. So because of that, just by itself, and having such a, a key economic location, they were booming and growing. As you can imagine, that made them influential. And its location, it, it, this also helped them become really a melting pot. Is the city, it was an ancient city, but it had been destroyed, and so Julius Caesar rebuilt the city in 44 B.C., which is not that long before Paul was writing. It's only a couple hundred years. And so there's still that economic location meant that they had to populate this city back up. And so people were coming from all over, from all these different nations, from all these different tribes, from all of these different peoples. And it made this this melting pot. They were filled with free people and slaves and people from all over these different places. And what that also meant is they brought their gods with them. So it was a city filled with hundreds of temples and hundreds of different religions. It was very pluralistic. It's you bring your God with you. We don't have one just over our city. You worship yours. We'll worship ours. We'll all worship our own gods. It'll be great. Every God's welcome and consumed here. Just don't tell me I'm wrong. That sounds familiar. And everyone coming was Corinth, and they would go there because it's such a new city. It's bustling. It's beaming. And it was an opportunity to advance. So the Corinthian people are chasing the Corinthian dream of social climbing, the dream of success. One commentator used some American lingo to describe it, and he said to use American terms, they were smoozing, massaging the superior shoulders, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's backs, and dragging rivals' names through the mud. That's what it was required to attain success in Corinth. And it was also a place filled with hedonism and sin. It was a place very well known for its sexual promiscuity. So much so that to call somebody a Corinthian girl was also was kind of a euphemism for a prostitute. Everyone knew what you meant. And another way to describe their reputation was that people would say, you know, well, you're really playing the Corinthian. You're acting like a Corinthian right now, which is to describe somebody who is very sexually immoral. And that's not believers using that language. That's unbelievers using that language. So if that's just regular people talking that way, that tells you a little bit of their reputation as a city. And so that's the city of Corinth. It's all the hedonism and sin of Las Vegas, the pride of Los Angeles and Hollywood, the greed of Wall Street and the corruption of Washington, D.C., all rolled up into one big city. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, it's no wonder that a church that's located here would find themselves with problems, wouldn't you think? 
And the church in Corinth, it really isn't that much better than the city of Corinth. Now, greetings in Paul's letters, I'll be honest, these are parts of letters I usually tend to skip over, read kind of quickly. Okay, Paul, hi, you know, greetings, grace, peace, blah, 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 to here, here's Susan writing with you, writing to you. Okay, Paul, give me the good stuff. Let's skip this. Right? Well, we can tend to do that, but if you do that, you can miss out on some things sometimes. And what you miss out on, if you look here, is you notice, Paul normally, his, he's got a formula. That's why I tend to skip it, because, well, okay, I've read this six times before, Paul, okay. But part of his formula is always complimenting the city. He'll start and he'll encourage them. He'll say, here's something I see in you. It's great. I love this. Keep it up. If you look, Paul doesn't actually encourage anything in Corinth. Even the stuff that he's thanking them, he's not thanking them for anything they've done. He's just saying, well, I'm really thankful. God's given you, verse 5, you're enriched in all speech and knowledge. 7, you're not lacking any gift. He's given you guys a lot of stuff. That's, that's pretty good. doesn't say, well, you're using that stuff really well. I'd say you're really well known for love. You're really well known as God's stewards. It's just God's given you guys a lot. That's, that's cool. So that's significant. Paul's already setting it up that there are issues. And this is one of the only letters I think that Paul does this where he doesn't praise something about the church in the beginning. And why? Well, again, like we mentioned, because this church is a mess. They're filled with plenty of gifts, but it's just led to chaos. Their worship is even chaotic. It's hard to even keep things straight because it's filled with tongues and no one's interpreting and they're going wild and things are going off and they're suing each other and there's sin, there's no preaching going on. And so in short, this church is really pretty close to the worst, if not the worst church that Paul writes a letter to, I think. I feel fairly confident saying it's the biggest, well, really for lack of a better term, this church is kind of just a dumpster fire when it comes to churches. It's the worst church. And in fact, it's so bad that Paul actually wrote them four letters. He didn't write just two letters to the church in Corinth. He wrote four. This is the second one. And he even says in there that, well, I wrote you one, and he refers to it later as the tearful letter because he acknowledges that he was so upset and in tears as he was rebuking and writing to them. And so we can just imagine, because Paul wrote those knowing they wouldn't be Scripture, how, you know, what did he really say there? I'm tempted to kind of read that. Yet... Even though they are the worst church, they are still Christ's bride. Look at the way Paul still describes them. He tells them they're saints in verse 2. To the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those. Paul doesn't respond to this church and just say, wash his hands of it and say, you guys are the worst, you're a dumpster fire, get out of here, don't want anything to do with you. He says, you know, let's not remember that you're still God's bride. You are still saints. You are still being sanctified. You still belong to Him. And Christ is not finished with them. God God doesn't ignore them. When you see verse 8, this is the one that stands out to me. He says, Jesus who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless. No guilt. No problems. No issues. Nothing no one can say, hey, oh, you went to Corinth? I've heard about your church. Paul says, no, one day you will, you will be guiltless. He isn't saying, let's ignore this bad stuff, let's sweep it on the rug and move on. He's saying that guiltlessness is still possible for you because you are Christ's bride. Jesus is not walking away from you. He still loves you. He's not dumping you because it's too hard. He will be with you to the very end. And because God, 9, is faithful 
And by Him, you are called into this fellowship. He's called you in, and He's faithful, church in Corinth. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to dump you to the side. Now, growing up, um, my mom and I didn't always get along very well. Um, and by that, I mean we would fight a lot, um, fairly often. And so, you know, she was always wrong, so obviously. So what I would do is go and tell my dad and talk to him and be like, Dad, don't you see, like, how, how bad your wife is? Look, I've got a list. I've been keeping track. Let me give you, here's all the things that mom is doing wrong. And I would get so frustrated with him because we would say it, and he would kind of look at me. I could see, like, he, he kind of knows I'm right. I mean, looking back on it, being a, you know, I, I'm not going to give it totally up. I was maybe right about a little stuff. I was really being a jerk and needed to repent. Um, but I would drive me nuts because my dad would respond. He would just look at me and say, son, that's my bride. That's my wife. It's like, but, but dad, you know she's doing this. Like, you know this is wrong. You know she shouldn't have done this. Like, come on, you got to be on my side. He'd say, son, that's, that's my bride. Say, look, you know, and looking back on it, now you could see maybe he did know some of the things that I was right on, but it, it didn't matter. Why? Because that's his bride. That's his wife. And he loves her anyway. That's a small picture of what, what Jesus does. And what Paul is saying, that even the very worst church is still Christ's bride. He's not done with us. He won't kick us to the curb. And we have to remember this because what is true of the church in Corinth, if it's true of them, then surely it can be true of us. Surely it can be true of any church in Stevens County. Remember the worst church you can think of. I haven't been here long enough to, to get my rankings figured out. I'm not getting rankings, I promise. But even churches that make us scratch our heads, that make us go, why does anyone go there? That church is the worst. They do this and this and this. Look, the worst church is still Christ's bride. And that's good news because that means our holiness, our goodness, our awesomeness as a church doesn't make God love us anymore. And that when we fail, when we totally mess up, when we ruin it, when we don't do things as we should do, we're still Christ's bride. And if that's true of our church, if that's true of Corinth, then that's also true of us individually. That Jesus loves us, that He has dedicated us to that no matter how much of a dumpster fire we individually may be or feel like or how unlovable we feel like or how much of a mess that we are, that Jesus loves us. And that you at your worst are still Christ's bride. And so that's the good news. The bad news, point number two, is that we can be tempted to follow men instead of Christ. That we are tempted to follow men really instead of Jesus. That even with all of that love and all of that faithfulness and all of that goodness, what do we do? We turn around and think, ah, you know what, I think I got something better, Jesus. And this is one of the first problems that Paul addresses head-on kind of in 10 through 17, and there's a lot here. I wish I could unpack all of it. Um, and some of this he actually unpacks again in chapter 3, so we'll hit some of this a second time. Um, so I don't want to spend forever here. But what we see here is that this is a rebuke that Paul gives, and it serves as a warning to us, because the church is just fighting. Verse 11, well, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, to her household, that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Quarreling is always kind of a funny word, you know. Okay, how, how bad is the fighting, really? There's bickering a little bit. He's just hearing some gossiping. Now, the bickering is so bad that Paul has heard about it from all the way wherever he is, probably in Ephesus, and many miles away, 
takes a long time, you can assume maybe at least a couple weeks, maybe longer to get a letter to him, to then write back, to then get another letter to hear. So that's a lot of traveling for Paul to hear how bad the fighting is going on in the city of Corinth, how much their bickering is, and how much all of this fighting that's going on. And it's serious. And so all, what's happening here is all of these groups are really fighting to really be the biggest and brightest. They want to be the ones in charge. They want to be the ones riding the city. They're, they're climbing that Corinthian ladder. They want to be the most important, the most well-known. And Paul lays this out in 12 and saying, what I mean, okay, is some of you are saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is just another um, word for Peter, another one of his names, or I follow Christ. And so what's going on here in this, what is, what is Paul saying? What does he mean when he says this? Well, it seems that what Paul is doing is he's talking a little bit hypothetically. He's not saying that this is actually what they're fighting about. That they're saying there's a Peter group over here, and then there's a Paul group over here, then you got the Apollos group, and then there's the, hey, I just like Jesus group over there. Okay, he's not saying that is what exactly is going on, because it's not doctrinal differences that are going on in the church. Because if that was the case, if there really were different doctrinal parties going on, then Paul would lay it out and he would correct them. That's what he does in Galatians. There's a circumcision party, and he spends a lot of Galatians rebuking them and saying, hey, here's what this party is teaching, and here's where they're wrong. And let me tell you why they're wrong. But he doesn't do that, because you think, well, Christ's party, that seems like the one that would be right, right? Or if there was a Paul one, then he'd say, hey, don't follow me. We need to be doing this one. He doesn't do any of that. He just kind of ignores them and, and moves on a little bit, because what's going on is the actual fighting in Corinth seems to be people who are trying to be the leaders trying to be the most important. They want to be the ones that has everybody following them. And because, again, we have to remember, too, many of these letters that Paul is writing, it's, sometimes it's just to one church in the city. Sometimes it's to many churches or all of the churches that are in the city. Corinth is a big city. There probably is more than one church here. And even if there's just one church, the churches would meet in themselves in different households, right? And so there would be many who are rich, like we see Chloe's household, that's not like her family, it's saying the people who meet at her house, that church that exists there, or that small group that's there. And so what happens is each of these different groups, they're, they're desiring to be the biggest and the best. They want to be the one in charge of everything, and they're fighting over that. And they're showing their authority over who they're baptizing, which is kind of why Paul says in 14, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you fools. Because then you guys would just be trying to jump on my things, right? And so what he's doing when he's using his name and Peter's name and Apollos' name, he's using them as placeholders. He's saying, okay, you guys want to follow men. That's what you want to do. You want to decide who's the biggest and that this guy's our pastor. We want him to be in charge. No, 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 I want this guy to be the pastor. I want him to be in charge. He's the one I want to follow. Saying, okay, you want to do that. Let's take this to the biggest extreme. All right, let's, if you're going to be a follower of men, you want to engage in personality cults, that's what you want to do. Well, surely there should be a cult of Paul, right? Because, I mean, I'm Paul. I've written a lot of the New Testament here. I've planted a lot of these churches. Pretty sure I planted your church, so I think I should have my own cult, right? There will be the cult of Paul. Then definitely we should have a cult of Peter because he's the chief apostle. He's the one over the apostles. He's one of the most important disciples, so he's got to have his own one, right? Then we'll have the cult of Apollos because, I mean, he's not an apostle, but he's really well known for being a great preacher. So he's the most gifted. He's got to have his own group, right? Well, then we'll have Jesus, you know, because we'll have this other one. 
And he's, what he's saying is, okay, if you have all of this, this is just so dumb, guys. What are you doing? And 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? Look, even if, if you do that, if you have to follow men, then follow me. But look, I'm not the one, I'm not Jesus. I didn't die on the cross for you. When you were baptized down in that water, it didn't say in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Apostle Paul, who's the best, and then pop you back up. So what he's saying, if you can't even, you shouldn't even be calling yourself a God, Apostle Paul guy. Oh, I, I like Peter. He's, he's my guy. He's saying, if you can't even do that, then why in the world are you trying to follow these other people instead of Jesus? Jesus is the only one that we should be following. And instead, he calls them to unity in Christ. And he does this really subtly all the way back in verse 1, or verse 2, when you see when he says, to the church of God in Corinth. This is in two ways. One, he just says, the church. Only one of you, you guys need to be united. And also he says, the church of God. That phrase he doesn't use a ton when he's saying the church of God. He'll say, oh, the church in here that belongs to God. Here he's saying, okay, this isn't Paul's church. This isn't Chloe's church. This isn't whatever church it is you want to think it is. This is God's church. This is God's. And really, there's only one of them. And in 10, his appeal, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you also notice, the name Lord Jesus or Christ pops up a ton in these verses. All throughout verses 1 through 9, it pops up six or seven times. And that's just there. Then it pops up again another seven or eight times in 10 through 17, and then a bunch throughout this chapter. It's just over and over and over and over again. That's intentional. Paul's doing something with that. He's not just... You know, like we can be when we pray and we're, you know, kind of run out of words or trying to forget, and then we just say, oh, Lord Jesus, a lot, and kind of, you know, I can fall into that trap, okay? We all do. He's not just doing that. It's intentional. He's begging them. He's saying, I appeal to you guys, knock it off. Stop. Why are you fighting? What is this? Quit. He's saying, stop being split into camps. Stop being divided. Stop being over here. I want to follow these people. And in following these people, I don't want to have anything to do with them over there because they're following the wrong person. And verse 10 is interesting in how it ends at the beginning of it. He says, I want you all to agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul is calling them to unity. To not being split into their own little camps and whoever they think they are or aren't following, but to be united in following Jesus. To not be divided. And really the word he's using there is to say not to be split into your own little parties with what you want to be doing. But what he's not saying, even when he's saying the same mind and same judgment, he doesn't mean I want you to all to agree on every single thing in every single place in every single way everywhere. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is, I want you all to realize that you're on the same team. I want you all to be united around the same idea, to be heading the same direction. It's the direction of Jesus. And this makes me think of a, a good example of this is you can think of an orchestra. Or you can think of a, a big concert band. Because in a great orchestra, okay, if it's really good, the better the orchestra, really kind of the more instruments you have to a certain point. Okay? A bad orchestra would be just a bunch of flutes. That wouldn't be as exciting to listen to, unless you really liked flutes. They're okay. I'd like some flutes in my orchestra, but not tons of them. 
but you need to have some flutes. And so the flutes will play a melody, and it'll be high. It'll probably be quick a lot of the time. And they'll have lots of notes, because flutes have tons and tons of notes. And then you also have a tuba. Tuba doesn't have as many notes. Tuba's very low. Tuba can be very boring to play because they just play long notes for a while. Then they switch to another note for a while. And another note for a while. And that's pretty much your tuba. Your tuba's going to do that the whole song. While the flute is doing all sorts of fun stuff, playing kind of whatever up there. Then you have saxophones, right? You have a bunch of saxophones maybe playing a melody and a harmony, but even the saxophones aren't going to all be playing the same exact notes. They're going to be split. You're going to cut it down the middle. Half the saxophones will be playing some higher notes. Half of them will be playing some lower notes. But all of them, all together, and the trumpets will be doing something different, and the trombones, and the baritones, and some French horns, and the clarinets, they'll all be having their own parts, all be playing their own notes, all be playing their own melodies. But when all of it's together... It'll be a beautiful, incredible song. And it sounds that much better because the, everything they're doing, though it's different, because they're playing the same song, complements itself. And the long notes of the tuba bring out and show how awesome the flute is and the saxophone and the trombones, and all of that together makes wonderful music. But if they all tried to do exactly the same thing, it would be a disaster. Maybe it's been a while. Have any of you heard a middle school band recently? Hey, they don't quite sound like that very often, do they? No, and often, a lot of times what happens, or if you go even earlier, okay, the elementary school bands, sometimes middle school bands get a little better. It's usually everybody playing exactly the same notes. Everyone playing the same thing all at once, and it just, they're also, I mean, they're young, they're learning, so they're not quite as good, but it just can be grating on your ears. It doesn't sound that beautiful. It doesn't sound that exciting. Or if everyone came into the orchestra and decided, you know what, I know we have this song we're going to play. I don't like this song. I'm going to play this song. I'm going to play my own song. And hey, you, why don't we three, while they play that song, while they're playing this nice slow concert thing, why don't we play a marching band tune? Let's do that. That'll be good. Okay, and if everybody did that, that's just going to sound awful and horrific. It's usually what it sounds like if you walk into a band room before they're ready to play. Everyone's just practicing playing their own thing. It sounds terrible. It is awful. Paul is saying, that, that's, that's what you guys sound like right now in all of your divining. Stop that. Be united. Let's play the tune of Jesus. Let's not be following men, following our own things. It's, we're meant to be a diverse unity because we are all united by Jesus. But our churches follow this all the time, don't we? We even see in most extremes, we see churches that end up splitting into their own things because we're, only, we're playing our own songs and I don't even want to be in the room with you anymore because you're not playing what I want to be playing. And so we split. You can see this in places where elders or leaders fight amongst themselves. Or I've seen this with places where places have different multiple pastors and so then the pastors start jockeying for who can be the most important pastor. I've got, I've got my people over here. No, no, I'm trying to get my people because I want to be something. And you see, in other places, I saw a church in San Antonio where this happened, where pastor got fired by the elders, not for anything sexually immoral, but he's really just a jerk, um, not a very nice person, um, so he got fired. You have to imagine how big of a jerk somebody has to be to get fired by a church, because that doesn't happen very often. There's plenty of jerks in ministry. Um, and so that happens, and so he decided he was going to plant his own church, and he planted it right across the street from the other church. Okay, that's not the only instance of that happening. That happens all the time. Okay, I don't know the history of all the churches in Duncan. I am willing to bet. I will bet all of the money in my bank account 
that a lot of those probably came from some split somewhere of somebody fighting some camp, something. Because we do that. Right? We want to follow men. We want to follow our own thing. We want to follow our own party. And sometimes we're more concerned about that than following Jesus. And we can do that in other ways. We can do that in small ways without realizing it too because our technology, which is so wonderful, has given us access to more preachers and more pastors and more churches than ever before. Now, you can leave here, you can go home, and you could listen to some of the best preaching you've ever heard. Definitely better than what you're getting this morning. Okay, you can go, you can listen to guys, you know, and you can, you can find that. You can listen to that all day long. So what happens is we can be tempted to locate ourselves in tribes. We can be tempted to follow certain people. We can say things, oh, you know, like I'm a, I'm a John Piper guy. I really like John Piper, so I, I'm, I'm in his camp. I don't, I don't like John Piper as much. I'm a Stephen Furtick guy. I'm over here. Oh, Matt Chandler or Craig Oshel, right? Whatever your list of pastors is, there's no end to them because we can find them. We can do that. We can even do this with theology, right? Because good theology is, is great, but we can start to divide ourselves over it. Start to say, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a John Calvin guy. Yeah, that's a big one. We can do, well, you know, I don't like John Calvin. I'm, I'm a Wesley guy. I want, to be, I want to do that. I want to be around those Calvinist guys. We can just fight and argue. And I love what Martin Luther said. Um, actually, when he heard that people started calling themselves Lutherans, um, he wasn't that excited about it in the beginning. And he said, you know, wh- what is Luther? What is this stinking bag of maggots, am I, that Christians call themselves by my evil name? Luther got a lot wrong. But he, he definitely got a lot right as well. And so the question for us is on all of these things. None of those things are bad. It's not bad to, to follow people completely, right? It's not bad to, to be encouraged by other pastors. It's not bad to even figure out questions of theology that maybe will lead you to disagree with somebody else. None of that is bad in and of itself. But is it bad? Or a good question for us to ask is, hey, is my following this person, is my following this thing helping me be more unified with the body of Christ, or is it dividing me against everybody else? Because good theology is is like a song. Or good following somebody, like Paul later will say, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. If you're really following somebody and they're really following Jesus, or you're really learning good theology and it's really about Jesus, then all of it should ultimately make you more unified to God's people and more unified in His Word. But too often what we do is we, we go awry, don't we? I can think of to kind of continue this music theme, right? So I, I did music, in case you can't tell. I, I really liked it. Um, and I was in marching band. Marching band was probably my favorite. Um, and there was a while, my last senior year, I got to be the drum major, which is just the person standing up, waving their hands around. Um, it looks kind of weird. It's very intentional what they're doing. Because what they're doing is they're marking, hey, this is the beat, Okay, so all of you, the song that we're all trying to play, you need to play it my speed. If I'm going too slow, everybody needs to go too slow. And what I loved about marching band is you get 120, you know, however many people in the band, and all of these people, and they're all trying to do exactly the same thing. And when they're doing the same thing, when they're all walking in the same beat, the drum major's saying, when they're playing the same song, when they're all stopped at the same time, they all move at the same speed, it's beautiful. It's incredible. Now, when they're not, when one person messes it up, everybody can see it. Okay, even if you don't know anything about marching, man, you're watching, you'll be like, what is that person doing? Well, that flag clearly is like totally lost. Everybody stopped, and this person's just like wandering around. It ruins it. 
right? It messes everything up. But that's what we need to be. If we, that drum major in some ways is, is like Jesus. Or are we all, who are we following? Are we following Jesus? Are we following the person who is directing us? Or are we trying to do our own thing? Okay, because what we can do is if we started to split and say, well, hey guys, like, I, I don't know what he's doing. He clearly dropped a beat. That happens sometimes. It just means they messed up and they forgot and now the whole song's off. I can just say, you know what? I don't want to follow him anyway. We're going to do it the right way. You guys follow me. Now you got half the people going this way, doing their thing, and half of them are going, it just looks horrible. Instead, we have to be following Jesus. We cannot fall into the temptation to follow men, to follow people, to follow things other than Christ. So that's bad. Now let's, uh, let's turn to the ugly, or the ugly gospel, as it were. The ugly is point number three, that the gospel is for fools. The gospel is for fools. Because part of the problem in Corinth isn't just that they're falling up men, but ultimately, and we see it here in the way that Paul lays this out in kind of the rest of this chapter, is that they are just trying to build themselves up. They're just boasting, trying to be somebody important, trying to be awesome. But the gospel is bad news for those who want to be important. The gospel is ugly and offensive to those who think that they really are somebody. Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That word folly or foolishness is repeated a number of times throughout this chapter. Over and over it says, the gospel is foolishness. Has not God made foolish in 20? In 25, for the foolishness of God. Is Morse. 27, for God chose what is foolish in the world. It, it pops up over and over and over again. And why? Because part of this is what we can forget. The gospel is actually offensive and foolish and to many people appears ugly and horrific. When they hear the gospel, it doesn't sound wonderful. It, it, it hurts. It stings. It cuts. And why? Well, Paul lays out for, for them in their context why the Greeks and the Jews find it offensive. In, 22, or in 20, it shows their attitude, right? So, where's the one who is wise? Okay, so what he's saying is, all right, some of you want to be the wisest person in the room. You want to be the one everyone goes to with your questions. Or where's the scribe? Which is not just somebody who's taking notes, it's the lawyer. Somebody, this is a very respected profession. Think doctor, think lawyer. Where's the debater of the age? Where's somebody who's the biggest philosopher? Who, who are these people? Because this, this is who the Greeks want to be. They want to be these. They want to climb the ladder. They love to be wise. They love to be the great debater. But the gospel doesn't make sense to any of these. There's a, there's a man in Corinth. Um, <laughs> I just, I love this. So he, his name is Babas. And in Go, they found two statues dedicated to this guy, Right? And if you read the description that says, you start reading, it says, well, this statue is built in the honor of Babas. And it kind of continues and says, and this was paid for generously by Babas. <laughs> it, it gets better. And this statue was commissioned by the mayor of the city in charge of commissioning statues by Babas. So twice, he sat there and thought, you know what? We need to build a statue to honor somebody. Oh, who could it be? I know, it'll be me. And you know what? I'll pay for it. And you know what? And then we'll put up a plaque so everyone knows that this is to me, paid by me, decided by me, because I'm, I'm so generous and so awesome and so worthy 
of honor. That, that is Corinth. That is what Corinth wants. I want everyone to know how awesome and amazing and wonderful they are. That is the ideal. And the Jews want signs. Right? And in 22, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Okay, what the Jews want from the gospel is they want something amazing. They want Paul to come and say, hey, look, you believe the gospel, and then like, you can just pick up snakes all the time you want, no matter how poisonous they are. Or, hey, you, know, you believe the gospel? i got some sweet magic tricks that I can show you. It's really great at parties. This is really cool. That, that's what they want. They want something from the gospel that makes them awesome that builds them up, that builds their reputations. They can keep climbing that ladder and keep being better and better and better. But instead, what they get is they get the cross. Instead, what they get is Jesus crucified on a piece of wood. And the gospel is summed up in that cross in 23. So the Jew, or 22, the Jews demand wisdom, the Greeks seek a sign, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Why is this foolishness and offensive? A number of reasons. One, because the cross is an offensive symbol. We forget that often, right? Because it's in much of our, our jewelry. We have it hanging up all around our room even. We, we love the cross, even as believers. We can forget for them, the cross was not this beautiful piece of artwork. It was a symbol of death by the state. It was the electric chair. It was the firing squad. And the cross was for the worst criminals. That was for the slaves and the worst people that you can imagine. They die on crosses. And so what we say is, hey, you know what? That place where the, the worst people die ever, yeah, we worship a God who was killed in that way. That, that's our God. That's who we want to be like. There's even a, a piece of art I found in a, in a Roman city around this time. I'm not in Corinth, but around there where it was somebody making graffiti and it was a donkey on a cross and then somebody standing there worshiping and said, oh, you know, so-and-so worships their God. That's what people thought of the cross. So the people thought, about Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross, and why did He do that? To wash us clean of our sins. To redeem us. To save the worst church and the worst people so that one day we could be guiltless. He didn't come as a conquering king with massive armies. He wasn't this brilliant businessman who built up this incredible empire worth following. But He was a Savior. And the gospel doesn't say, the secret of the gospel, and the reason it's offensive is because it doesn't say that we are all awesome and amazing. The gospel doesn't say, hey, you are perfect and beautiful exactly the way you are. Just keep doing you. You, you go. The gospel isn't a secret to success. Hey, believe the gospel, and then you know what, man? You come here, and then your business, just like that, it's going to get better and better because we serve a good God, and He's just going to keep multiplying your portfolio. You get more and more expansions on the gospel isn't brilliant wisdom. It's not like this secret thing you have to pay for and you learn it and just go, oh, that, that's it, that makes sense, that explains the whole universe. Only the smartest people could believe this. The gospel is simple. The gospel is like Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus wants to make you new. That's a, a child can understand that. Child's children do understand that. And the way of Jesus and the cross, it's offensive to the world because we also have to acknowledge our own sinfulness. We have to acknowledge that we are filled with sin, that we are desperately in need of Jesus. The truth of the cross is that Christ was killed. He was massacred. He died in a brutal, awful way because of my sin. Because of your sin. 
And the world doesn't like to be told that they're wrong. No one likes to be told that you're wrong. And we definitely don't want to believe that we're all deserving of eternal death and suffering and punishment. But that's what the cross tells us. It tells us that first, and then it tells us what Jesus did for us. We don't want to hear any of that. The cross is a stumbling block because it knocks us to our knees. The cross tells us that we cannot stand and proclaim how awesome we are and how much we deserve everything that the world would give us. We have to trip and fall down on our faces at the cross and acknowledge who Jesus is, what He's done for us. The gospel is for fools because it reveals our own foolishness. This is the, the last part of this chapter I love. This is one of my favorite sections of Scripture in 26, 27, 28. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were the smartest people in the room. Not many of you were powerful, nor many of noble birth. Now, it says not many. It doesn't mean that God only saves those who are poor and dumb and broken. But that's primarily who He saves. Why? Well, partly because those are the people who can admit how much they need Jesus. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. God didn't come to Corinth to save the best. He didn't come to say the top 30 under 30 most likely to make a big difference in the world. God came for everyone else. There was a writer at this time who would write and talk about Christians and say, you know, Christianity is the worst because obviously only slaves, women, and children are dumb enough to believe that foolishness about the cross. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus and the gospel so often come to those in the margins so that no one can boast anything other than Jesus? The gospel is for those that the world leaves behind. The gospel is for fools. The gospel is for those who are in constant pain and who are broken. The gospel is for those who are sick. The gospel is those who are put last on the list for getting help at the hospital. The gospel is for those without any power or influence in the small corners of the world. Why? Because God wants to show how awesome He is. Because there's, no play, there's, there's nowhere you can run away from God's love. The worst people, the, these people often will feel like they are unlovable, feel like God doesn't want them. God couldn't want me. What would God, what could, I have nothing to give God. Exactly. Because none of us do. None of us do, and yet He chose us. Why? Not because we were incredible, not because He couldn't resist us. It was just a great deal at the salvation store, but because He loves us. And he wants to show off. So what is the part of the way? What's the way out of the crisis in our churches? It's the gospel. It's the reminder that ultimately we are all just fools who are really lucky that Jesus saved us. And we would do better to remember that. If we went into every confrontation, every argument, every disagreement with the mindset of, you know what, I'm, I'm just a fool who is low and despised, and I'm really lucky that Jesus saved me. And I just want to talk about how awesome Jesus is. It's kind of hard to fight with that person. The way forward is not to, to fight and to win. It's not to let's go to war with those other churches, getting everything wrong. 
It's not to kick out all the people who are holding us back. If we could just get rid of this dead weight, then our church could really do something. The way forward is to look at the cross, to fall on our faces, to embrace the, the folly of fools in the gospel of Jesus. Because the gospel is, not, it is simple. You don't need me to be the only person who can tell this county about the gospel because it's simple. It doesn't require a seminary degree. It just requires the faith of a fool. I love um, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I'll close a little bit with, with this. He was um, known as the Prince of Preachers. It's a pretty good title. So it lets you know how good of a preacher he was. He was really good. He's the most famous preacher in the world. His grandfather was also a preacher. Not quite as good. Definitely not quite as good. People often would leave his church and go to his grandson's church. And so somebody came to him and told him, you know, man, like, you're, you're okay, but, I mean, your grandson is just awesome. I mean, he's the best. He's the best preacher I've ever heard. And he responded with this, this statement that I love. He said, yeah, you know, Spurgeon may preach, he may be a much better preacher than me, but he can't preach a better gospel than me. You know what, no, no matter the preacher, no matter the church, there will be churches all throughout the world. There will be churches in town way better than us. But you know what, those churches don't have a better Jesus. Those churches don't have a better gospel. There will be other Christians who may seem like they're way better than you. They, they don't have a better Jesus. They don't have a better gospel. And that's what we need to remember. So today, I mean, we've looked at the good and the bad and the ugly. We've seen and been reminded the worst church is still Christ's bride. And we've seen the bad of how too often what we do is we, we are tempted to follow men instead of just following Jesus because we want to lift ourselves up and be important. And the ugly, that the gospel is for fools. And this may be ugly to the world, but in the upside-down kingdom of God, ugly is unifying. So let's remember the gospel church. It's the way out of every crisis, out of every problem, it's still the same. It's the cross. It's the gospel of Jesus. And it's the fact that he loved us enough to die and to save us, every single one. Let's pray and I'll invite the worship team to come up. Lord, I thank you that you would die for a fool like me. Lord, that when you came, you didn't come for the best and the brightest. You didn't come for the people who have it all together. You didn't come for the people that the world would want. We're not on the world's draft board or their number one draft picks. But Lord, you chose us. That you came and sent your son to die on the cross for our sins because you love us. Lord, I pray that you would help us keep the gospel at the forefront. Lord, there are many problems in your church. You know them. You know them way better than we do. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that you would aid us. Help us to, to be more unified, not just here at Tanglewood, but to be more unified with the larger body of Christ in our community and all over the world. Lord, most importantly, we just ask that you would keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds. Lord, that you would never let us forget the wonder and the beauty of what you have done for us. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.
holy, and I'm so thankful for his mercy and his love. I'm going to read this benediction for you at the end of 2 Corinthians. The, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship be with you all. Remember the gospel this week, church. God bless you. You're dismissed.